Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's been roughly 10 years since e-cigarettes, vaping, took off, um, especially among young people. The electronic delivery devices uh, go by many different names, e-cigs, vape pens, vapes. And uh, as anyone acquainted with these know, they're available in many different shapes and sizes. They can look like cigarettes. They can look like cigars, pipes, pens, or just like uh, USB flash drives. Uh, And these devices usually deliver a potent dose of nicotine quickly to the brain. They're typically small and so this is really key. They're easily concealable. Now, if you think back approximately a decade when this vaping craze started, e-cigarettes or, uh, were promoted as a far healthier alternative to smoking tobacco. Uh, sales grew steadily, but not dramatically for the companies. That is until they discovered a lucrative new market, young people. This hour, Several perspectives as we mark a decade of the vaping craze. In just a few minutes, a conversation about e-cigarette regulation I had earlier this week with Brian King. He's a director of the FDA's Center for Tobacco Products. But first, I had the opportunity earlier this week to talk with a former e-cigarette user about how and why he started and why it proved so difficult to quit. Jacob Rosenketter, welcome to our program. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. You are in your mid-20s now, 24 years old, a former e-cigarette user. Uh, Also, I'll just throw in this because it's it's sort of an important context. A former competitive swimmer, uh, now uh, one of the head lifeguards at the University of Iowa Campus Recreation Wellness Center. Also an assistant coach to a local high school boys high school swim team. Your story is... As we'll hear, it's one of millions across this country, the allure of vaping, getting hooked, and then struggling to quit. Uh, Jacob, when and why did you pick up that first vape pen? I believe it was in July of 2021. It was towards the end of my summer semester for um, University of Iowa, and I just got bored studying one day, and I realized that there was a vape on the table. Um, probably left from a former social or prior social gathering that we had. And I'm like, what's the big deal? Why do people do it? So out of curiosity and boredom, I hit it. And then for about a minute, I get a massive head rush and this huge desire to get like back to work. I was fully motivated to get back to work, go back to the uh, task on hand it seemed to just decrease my activation energy needed to like start back up with studying or anything that I was doing. But um, I was just like, this is great, but I know it's dangerous and I know I can get addicted to it, to it just like many of my friends or colleagues. So I limited myself to just hitting it once an hour of studying specifically. But as the fall semester started and studying picked up, I started to hit it more frequently. And then my baseline for nicotine increased. So that led to me hitting it maybe every half hour, then every 15 minutes. And then it crept outside of studying into 
basically every single part of my life because I found that if I didn't have it or I wasn't very preoccupied with what I was doing, there would always be a constant thought in the back of my head. It's like, when can I get a next puff? You were craving it. I was craving it, yep. Yeah. This is interesting because you started relatively late, not in your teens. And so I have to ask, vape pens were around long before you tried them and got hooked on them. What kept you from it before? Was it your, 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 you identify as an athlete? I think it was the environment I was in because I was with a lot of potentially D1 athletes in my high school years and no one in my club that I knew of used e-cigarettes or vaped at all. So it wasn't really, wasn't really something that was readily available or discussed. Mm -hmm. Okay. How much were you vaping at your peak? If I bought a 2,500 puff disposable, it would probably take me five to seven days to get through it. 2,500 puffs, and you went through that in a week. Yep. So that's, you're, you're taking a hit every... <laughs> Who knows? Every few minutes. Yeah, we're going to have to do the math on that. But um, <laughs> I've also had friends or acquaintances as well that have gone through what I did within two to three days. Mm. So that was crazy to me. Did you ever investigate how much nicotine was getting to your brain? Did you become interested in that? No, I never really did. Not like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. I know there's a whole laundry list of toxins in it now, but. (laughs) (laughs) What, how, how could you observe or feel that it impacted your health, both physically and mentally, when you were vaping so much? I noticed that towards the peak, I was always very restless if I didn't have it. So there was restlessness. For physical health, I always had a lot of phlegm in my throat and I would always have to like huck that out. And that was very annoying and impeded my breath sometimes. Mm -hmm. What about your thinking? Thinking, like I said before, since my mind was always on when can I get my next puff? Um, if I wasn't doing something that was very engaging, then, um, I wasn't always the most focused. Yeah. And so your focus, it sounds like was increasingly drawn toward when's my next puff when it was. So that became what became a mind sharpening tool became a huge distraction. That's right. Yep. Mm -hmm. When did you decide to quit? How hard was that? So um, prior to trying to quit, I told myself I will stop when I graduate from college because there's no more studying and I won't have as many stressors. So I'll have time to wean myself and face the withdrawal. It didn't, it took more, a little bit more than a year though, after graduating to get off. Um, Take me through that. It takes a year to quit. So you had, it sounds like probably numerous instances, I'm going to quit. And then your brain would start to rationalize, "Eh, I don't really need to do that right now. Is that what happened? (laughs) There would be a lot of different reasons for um, buying another one, rationalizing it. It'd be like, well, it's only $15 a week for something that will suppress my hunger and I won't have to buy $15 worth of snacks or more. I don't want to be irritable around my friends because my friends will soon be gone um, once they graduate college. So let's let's try to write it out. Um, let's just keep buying them. Yeah. Yeah. Did, w- when was your last puff on a vape pen? 
Um, early August of this year. Early August of 2023. So you had, sounds like about two years of this. Yes. Yep. About two years. What would be your advice if someone was, uh, you know, at their peak of vaping right now and uh, tell us what works and what doesn't, or maybe that's very individual. Well, for me, going back to being in a good environment, I actually um, moved from a five-person house to living to my on my own. Um, there wasn't anyone around there with a vape. When I was by myself, there wasn't always something to hit or ask a buddy if he had one. It's like if, if you're trying to lose weight, get the ice cream out of the exactly. refrigerator, please. Exactly. <laughs> something that I did to help reduce the amount of times I hit was I kept buying the same flavor and it wasn't a very fun flavor. It was just like spearmint or something. Yeah. And that became very dull. And towards the end, when I kept buying them, I started loathing the trip to go there. Like, really, are we doing this again? We're doing this again? It tastes bad. Yeah. I'm wasting money. Something that helped me look at the big picture, at least monetarily, was I created a bank account that would automatically deposit roughly $20 every two weeks. So $40 a month. And that's slowly grown over time. Now I can use it for whatever holiday season. It's interesting that you describe how uh, you were thinking about paying for e-cigarettes and and the benefits of stopping by saving money. But didn't you have any health concerns that you were thinking about at the same time? Wasn't that a motivator? It was a motivator when I really when I stopped and realized that my throat was clearing up. Uh, I could breathe better. My head was more in the present than focusing on when I could get my next puff. But I'm in my 20s and they're, I'm like, I feel invincible when I'm younger. And there isn't <laughs> a lot of research out there either that confirms that there was a negative effect from cigarettes or sorry, e-cigarettes, um, at least compared to cigarettes. Yeah. You said you had your last pu- puff of a vape pen back in August. That's several months. Do you feel that uh, it still has, to any degree, its hooks still in you? Do you think about it? Definitely when I'm drinking. Like, I'll have one or two drinks, and then um, I'll have a deep desire to hit it. Breaks down your inhibitions. Then right. it's tough, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you think it's had any lasting impact on your health uh, as of this point? And on your thinking, your brain, your moods, your alertness that you can notice now? Are you working yourself out of some kind of spot that you don't want to be in? Thankfully, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was on nicotine long enough, and I don't think I started it as young as some people, thankfully. So I that hasn't been something that I've had to drag myself out of. Mm-hmm. What's your advice for someone who hasn't yet picked up that vape pen, <laughs> who might be thinking about it? It's not worth it. When you tried to quit, uh, how on board were your circle of friends or your family? How important were they to quitting? I never brought it up to my parents, really. So they live almost a thousand miles away. And if I want to keep something hidden like I did with vaping, I I did. Um but my friends were supportive in the fact we've had 
people in my friend group that have wanted to stop drinking. So this isn't the first time that my friend group has tried to be supportive towards quitting a substance. So that was uh, that was very nice to have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very good. Uh, Jacob Rosenketter, former e-cigarette user. We wish you well and uh, uh, hope you, you stay away from those vapes forever. Yeah, thank you, Ben. <laughs> Thanks for sharing your experience. Next, a look at e-cigarette regulation. I'll talk with the director of the FDA's Center for Tobacco Products after a short break. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's been roughly 10 years since e-cigarettes became a thing, a big thing, uh, since vaping took off, especially among younger people. According to a recent report from the CDC, over 1 in 10 young adults in our country regularly use e-cigarettes. Later in the hour, pulmonologist Dr. Thomas Gross of the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics will join us live to talk about the health effects of vaping. Do you have a question uh, about vaping that concerns your health or the health of a loved one? Share your experience, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Now let's talk about the regulation of e-cigs, e-cigarettes, how that's evolved over time. Earlier this week, I had a chance to talk with Brian King. Brian King is a director of the Food and Drug Administration's Center for Tobacco Products. He's uh, been working in the field of tobacco control for over 20 years. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. As we're marking about 10 years, I'd like you to take us back to to your recollection, when e-cigarettes entered the scene in a big way, started to become very popular, and when they first became widely available commercially, and what type of regulation were they under? Yeah, so we've certainly seen an evolution of of e-cigarette products themselves and also regulation. Um, The product did hit the United States around 2007, and it wasn't um, until 2009 that the FDA got the authority to regulate tobacco products in general. But it wasn't actually until 2016 until e-cigarettes were brought under um, the jurisdiction of of FDA's regulatory authority. Since that time, um, we've seen a variety of of these products enter the marketplace. Um, They've kind of evolved like iPhones, if you will, from larger tank style systems. And now they're becoming smaller and sleeker and also resembling everyday objects like USB flash drives. And so it's certainly been a bit of a roller coaster, particularly when it comes to use use of these products. But the good news is that they are under the authority of FDA to regulate, and we're taking many actions to help curb youth use. Where would you point to as the important milestones in regulating e-cigarettes since they entered the market? And what was the thinking behind the regulation in those milestones? 
Yeah, so 2016 was really the key benchmark for regulating e-cigarettes in the United States, and that's when the FDA deemed the products, which means they brought them under our jurisdiction so that we couldn't regulate the manufacture, the marketing, and sale of these products. That said, the the act that gave us that authority didn't um, prevent states and communities from implementing um, certain strategies. So you tend to see actions um, taken at at that level as well, including some things FDA can't do, you know, things like taxation and including e-cigarettes and smoke-free policies. But as of 2016, FDA um, has had that ability to regulate these products. Um, including the manufacturing, the marketing and sale, including taking enforcement actions um, against companies that are selling illegal products, and also importantly, reviewing applications from people who want to enter new products into the marketplace so that we can address the on-ramp and making sure there's a regulated entry, but also that off-ramp to remove those illegal products that haven't passed the appropriate scientific muster um, from entering the the U.S. marketplace. Mm I'm sure there's quite a few details here, but in a broad sense, what's legal now and what's illegal? Yeah, so in order to enter the U.S. marketplace, as if a product was um, introduced after 2007, they have to submit an application to FDA. Um, And so all e-cigarettes entered after that time, so there's no pre-existing tobacco products according to the, the, the law. And so companies have to submit an application that documents the risks and the benefits of the, the product to public health. Um, and FDA makes an evaluation based on the science and the risks for these products um, can be substantial, particularly around use initiation and use. Um, but there also could be benefits. And if an adult smoker were to use them to transition away from, from regular smoking, that said, we've received um, 26 million products for um, review at FDA. We've reviewed about 99% of those. And to date, we've authorized 23 e-cigarettes. All of those are tobacco flavored um, because we know that has low peel uh, among kids compared to flavors, you know, like candy and fruit. Um, But those 23 e-cigarette products and devices are the only ones that are legally allowed to be sold in in the U.S. marketplace. Mm -hmm. So so all these fruity flavors that we saw years ago, they're not legal? Is that what you're telling me? Those are not authorized um, uh, products, so um, they are subject to enforcement action. Of course, FDA can't be everywhere at every time, mm-hmm. um, but we do prioritize actions against those products that we know are particularly appealing to kids. Um, and so we do know that 90% of kids who are using e-cigarettes are using flavored varieties, um, and disposable varieties are the most commonly used. And so right now, our enforcement priorities are really focused on those flavored disposable products, particularly brands that we know are popular among kids. When you say tobacco-flavored, that's different than having nicotine in it, because in my conversations with e-cigarette users, nicotine is the, is the key ingredient here that they want in their e-liquid or, or vape juice. Yeah, so all the e-cigarettes do contain nicotine. So that's the common denominator, which, of course, we know is highly addictive. But um, regardless of the nicotine source, um, we do have the ability to regulate those products. Traditionally, most nicotine was derived from the tobacco plant, but more recently it's been created in a lab. But FDA does have the authority to regulate nicotine regardless of you know where it comes from. But when it comes to e-cigarettes, they all contain nicotine, but they can contain different types of flavors. Some are just straight tobacco flavor, but some can be, um, you know, fruit and candy or other types of sweets. And so that's the difference. Um, we know kids are particularly uh, find uh, appealing those uh, sweet candy products um, and that the tobacco flavor are, are less appeal to them. Mm-hmm. Is when you have a, a, a vape pen with e-liquid that has nicotine in it, how big of a hit of nicotine does your brain get when you inhale once, twice, three times? 
Yeah, so we do know that, you know, nicotine, of course, is highly addictive, but we also know that it can harm the developing adolescent brain. And so that's why um, there are concerns about youth use of these products. And right now, there is no cap on nicotine levels in e-cigarette products. Some other countries have done that, certainly something that could be considered in the United States, but isn't presently on the docket. Um, we're currently considering capping um, nicotine levels in, in regular cigarettes and certain other smoked products. But when it comes to the nicotine, um, we do know that it is highly addictive. And there's also been an evolution in the type of nicotine and uh, newer types of nicotine, particularly nicotine salts, they're called, um, allow um, the nicotine to cross the blood brain barrier more easily. And so that means um, that you could have higher risk of addiction and dependency among kids. It could be a benefit. And if an adult smoker wants to get enough nicotine to rival what they would get from a regular cigarette and to transition, but it is concerning from the youth and young adult perspective in that if you've never been exposed to nicotine, it's, it's more likely you'll be addicted if you use some of these newer products. Is there a way you can quantify, compare how one puff on an e-cigarette with nicotine matches up with a puff on a combustible, a burning tobacco cigarette? Yeah, it's it's tough to do an apples to apples because there's so much variability in not only the products themselves, but also the way that people use them. And so there's a variety of different e-cigarettes out there with different concentrations and, and different deliveries. And then people also use them differently and inhale differently. But, you know, when it comes to the amount of nicotine that people absorb, Traditionally, it's been higher levels of nicotine through smoked products, because when you smoke a product, it's a very effective way for nicotine to cross the blood-brain barrier. And so in the past, e-cigarette products didn't rival regular cigarettes because they weren't able to deliver nicotine as efficiently. But over time, especially with that introduction of those nicotine salts that we're talking about, we now have a situation um, where there are e-cigarettes that are able to rival the extent of nicotine delivery as you would get from a regular cigarette. Um, and in some cases, it, it can be, you know, very, very high level. As you mentioned, Brian, they were marketed as a way to, and they still are marketed as a way to quit smoking tobacco, traditional cigarettes. What about those claims? To what extent do they actually do that for tobacco smokers? Is there any data on that? One thing to remember is that there's two ways that e-cigarettes are regulated in the United States. So one is through the tobacco product lane. And so if you don't market the product for therapeutic purposes, such as a smoking cessation, um, they fall under um, tobacco regulation. Um, if you want to market it as a smoking cessation tool, you can go through um, another center at FDA, which is the Center for Drug Evaluation. Um, and there you have to document um, that your product is safe and effective. Um, and that means that it actually helps people quit smoking. Um, that said, to date, there has been no e-cigarette that has been approved um, in the United States um, as a cessation device. The 23 e-cigarettes that have been authorized as tobacco products have been shown um, to help people transition completely away from a cigarette, but they haven't been shown to be safe and effective. So that said, you know, we are seeing an emerging body of evidence that is showing that certain types of e-cigarettes are effective to help people transition away from smoking. Certain devices, particularly those that deliver nicotine um, in a more efficient way, do that better. So there are some people that are quitting with e-cigarettes, um, but it is important to note that a lot of people continue dual using. And that means using both a cigarette and an e-cigarette. And the science shows that that does not 
render a, a sizable public health benefit. And so if you do want to use an e-cigarette for the purposes of, of quitting and transitioning from a regular cigarette, you got to transition completely in order to get that benefit. And in the long term, the goal should be to quit using all tobacco products. Um, because again, there's no e-cigarette that's been approved as a cessation device that is safe and effective. The only products that we've authorized are ones that have uh, been shown to help adult smokers transition away, but that doesn't mean they're safe. There, there's no safe tobacco product. And that's the important message. If you're going to use it and you're an adult smoker, you've got to transition completely and the goal should be ought to be off all tobacco products in the long game. And if you're a kid, there's no reason to be using a tobacco product at all, including e-cigarettes. The FDA, along with the CDC, recently released some data from the 2023 National Youth Tobacco Survey on tobacco product use uh, among U.S. youth and uh, e-cigarettes uh, to qualify as a tobacco product. E-cigarettes, according to this data, remain the most commonly used tobacco product among both high school and middle school students for the 10th year in a row. And among youth who reported current e-cigarette use, approximately one quarter reported using e-cigarettes every day. What are your main concerns, other takeaways from that most recent survey? Yeah, so the most recent data from the survey, we have some good news and some bad news. You know, the good news is that we saw a decline in e-cigarette use among high school students in this country. Um, so down from about 14% to 10%. Um, which is a public health win. Um, back in 2019, when we peaked in e-cigarette use among kids, um, it was over 5 million kids using the products. And so now we're down to just over 2 million, um, which is a good thing. Um, the bad news is we still got 2 million kids using these products. Um, and, you know, as you note, about a quarter of them are using the products every day. And so it's really important that we redouble our efforts to make sure that we're continuing to address those levers that are influencing youth use. Um, and when it comes to that, um, I've said before that the advertising will lead the horse to water, the flavors get them to drink, and the nicotine keeps them coming back for more. And so that that trifecta of the promotion, the, the youth appealing flavors, and also the highly addictive drug that is nicotine are driving youth use. And so it's important that we implement strategies um, at the population level to make sure we, we continue to drive down the rates of youth use, um, particularly for those, those younger kids. Um, of concern in these latest data is we did see a slight uptick in overall tobacco use among middle school students, um, which appeared to be driven by sixth graders. Um, and so we really want to be mindful that really young kids are using tobacco products and prevention is really critical. You know, that ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And if we can stop kids from using tobacco products by age 18, um, it's our best bet to make sure we're preventing them from a lifetime addiction um, as adults. Mm -hmm. What's our understanding, and I'll ask this of our medical doctor who's on later in the program, but uh, from your understanding, what is the impact of such high concentrations of nicotine over time, especially on young developing brains? So we do know that, of course, nicotine is, is highly addictive. And so the addiction potential is, is of utmost um, concern. But there's also a growing body of literature showing that um, nicotine exposure during adolescence can, can harm the developing brain. And it's important to remember that the brain continues to develop until about age 25 and 26. So this isn't just, you know, uh, adolescence. This is also well into young adulthood. 
And we also know that nicotine can prime the brain for addiction to other drugs. And so there's multiple reasons um, why these products have no redeeming aspects among kids. And it, it's a good reinforcement um, to make sure that, you know, we're setting up kids for success, um, particularly at that critical juncture when their brain is developing. We don't need to have it assaulted with a highly addictive drug. So um, there's a lot of misperceptions around what's included in these products, but the common denominator is indeed nicotine. And that in itself is, is quite harmful for both youth as well as young adults. Mm -hmm. Brian, as director of the FDA Center for Tobacco Products, what do you see now in 2023 as the chief obstacles in the way of more successful, more effective regulation to discourage uh, e-cigarette use and, of course, uh, tobacco products in general? One of the greatest um, uh, hurdles is really just the rapid and dynamic nature of, of these products and the sheer volume. Um, so as I've noted, we've had 26 million products for which applications have been submitted to the FDA. And so it's simply unprecedented for any other consumer product um, in terms of, of, of regulatory purview. Um, for our part, FDA can't be everywhere at every time, but of course we can prioritize and we've done that. Um, we continue to issue warning letters to manufacturers and retailers and importers and distributors who are violating the law. Um, and more recently, within the past year, we've also escalated um, our actions, moving beyond warning letters um, to civil money penalties and also injunctions in coordination with the, the U.S. Department of Justice. And so we take that comprehensive approach across the supply chain to make sure that we are addressing these products um, with a particular focus on the ones used against kids. Um, that said, it continues to evolve. And so we have our pulse with rapid data to monitor what products are being used by kids, what are the products that are going to have the greatest impact on public health, and we focus our energies in terms of enforcement compliance to make sure we get those off of the marketplace and prevent kids from using them. Are there any other misconceptions about e-cigarettes that you run across that are common in society? Yeah, I think one of the biggest misperceptions is that these products are harmless. Um, so we certainly know that as a general product class, they have lower risk than a regular cigarette. Um, but on balance, most things are safer than a regular cigarette. You know, a regular cigarette has 7,000 chemicals and, and 70 carcinogens. And so I think it's important for people to, to know that it's, it's not harmless water vapor. Um, it's an aerosol that can in, include harmful, potentially harmful constituents, um, and including nicotine for kids. Um, and so when it comes to that youth demographic, there's no reason that they should be using these products. And for an adult smoker, um, we know it's lower risk than a regular cigarette. And that said, you know, if they're not already using a tobacco product, they shouldn't start. Um, but if they're an adult smoker who wants to quit, it's important to use FDA-approved medications, um, including the seven that FDA has approved, including the nicotine patch and gum. Um, and if you that doesn't work and you want to try an e-cigarette, you have to transition completely. Um, and that's one misperception, again, that I think a lot of adult smokers have, that they think, oh, well, if they just reduce a little and continue using both the e-cigarette and cigarette, they're going to have a net gain. And the, the available science is very clear that you, you've got to transition completely or significantly reduce the amount you smoke in order to have that net benefit. And, and again, the goal should be to quit all tobacco products in the long run. Okay. Brian King, uh, director of the Food and Drug Administration Center for Tobacco Products. He's been working in tobacco control for over 20 years. Brian, thank you for letting us draw on your experience and expertise in this area. You're very welcome. I appreciated the time chatting today. 
When we return, we address the health effects of vaping with a lung doctor. Join us with your questions, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. If you just joined us midstream in this edition of River to River from IPR News, we're talking about e-cigarettes this hour. They really took off, if you remember, about 10 years ago. This hour, the toll that vaping has taken, especially on our young people, more than one in 10 young adults in this country regularly turn to e-cigarettes, mostly, of course, for their highly addictive nicotine. At the start, we heard that firsthand account of vaping addiction, the struggle to quit, variations of that story echoed by millions of Americans. Then we just heard the head of the FDA's Center for Tobacco Products on the evolution of e-cigarette regulation. Finally, let's talk with a lung doctor uh, live about health concerns surrounding this vaping craze. Dr. Thomas Gross is in our Iowa City studio. He's a pulmonologist, professor of internal medicine in pulmonary critical care and occupational medicine at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Dr. Gross, thank you for coming in. Good afternoon. Pleasure to be here with you. Let's have you first talk about the broad harm in broad terms. We don't have much time, and we have already a number of questions from our listeners. Uh, I remember about a decade ago when I first had conversations about e-cigarettes on this show, I heard again and again, well, we don't have any or nearly any studies on the health effects because it's so new. Broadly speaking, now what do we know about the health risks of vaping? What's the science here, doctor? Right. So the you know, unfortunately, science accumulates over time. And we haven't had very much time, as you pointed out. A decade in in biomedical research is really not a very long time. But it's become pretty clear, as uh, your first speaker, Jacob, described, that symptoms of chronic bronchitis, so chronic cough, throat irritation, shortness of breath, are far more common among regular vaping users, and whether that's nicotine or other inhalational things being delivered through a vape pipe. Interestingly, during uh, sort of the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, it became clear that people who were actively vaping were more likely to have symptomatic COVID-19. And those symptoms tended to be a little bit worse and last a little bit longer. What we don't have is really long-term cumulative data yet for things uh, that we worry about in more traditional cigarette smoking, like the development of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, emphysema, lung cancer, um, those sorts of ill effects. And what's concerned me the most is sort of this dissociation between the rapid normalization, if you will, socialization of vaping and this gap we have in knowledge. Where I don't think we want to live through the same thing we did with traditional cigarettes where 40, 50 Mm -hmm. years from now we're wishing we jumped on this a little sooner. Right. And in, but in the short term, and I'm, I'm thinking back to statistics I've read about the CDC, thousands of e-cigarette users have required hospital admission, and, and we have dozens that have died, right? And that's not long term. No, that's not long term. And that, and that may be a little different. So many, what you're describing there, I think, is what's uh, known as e-valley or electronic cigarette vaping associated acute lung injury, um, which is an acute injury to the lung 
mm. often felt to perhaps be due to some contaminant in the vape juice um, that's being inhaled. Uh, there's been some descriptions of uh, vitamin E acetate added to some um, marijuana products, THC products. Not entirely clear, but yeah, ab- absolutely, you can have this sort of idiosyncratic reaction, if you will, to the use of, uh, of a vape product that can make you very sick or have you, uh, have you die. Um, yeah, we focused. Yeah, we focused on the nicotine, but but go into that more. We have these ultra fine particles in this aerosol inhaled deeply into the smallest corners of our lungs. Right, right? and we're just starting uh, to branches. learn what some of those are. Um, you know, as, as the uh, your speaker from the FDA pointed out, you know, I mean, they get millions of applications for devices, and those are people that are going through legal channels. There are many of these devices that come from overseas that are totally unregulated. We have no idea what's in some of these uh, these fluids. And so I like the term aerosol over vapor because it clearly describes that there's a whole palette, a whole menu, if you will, of, of particulates and chemical compounds in there. And one of the things that appears to happen is that vaping kind of primes your lungs. So it's causing some sort of low-level inflammation. So it might be the second hit to somebody who has a propensity to, uh, to lung injury. Um, again, we're just we're just starting to learn some of these things, but there are definite animal models showing uh, inflammation and injury to the lung that are very provocative and very concerning. And uh, mm. yeah, but we've seen several cases of this acute lung injury at the university that's absolutely terrifying. Mm. Yeah. So so the lungs, what we know is the lungs react to this type of aerosol inhaled deeply, uh, the same way they do as a traditional smoke from a traditional. A combustible cigarette differently, or does well, it matter? Well, it, 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 it's probably differently. The particles are smaller. Um, their their composition is different. Uh, there are some similarities, I think, in the inflammatory response. But we, yeah, we really, we still really don't know. Mm. Uh, let's go to some of our emails. Very much um, interested our listeners in in finding out more. Uh, this is from an anonymous emailer listener. I am in my early twenties. I vaped for several years. Finally quit for good uh, about a year ago. What can you tell me about the harm I've done to my lungs, my body, my brain? How much he goes on, or she goes on? How much of that harm does the body recover from? What harm may be permanent? Right. So I, I, I'd like to encourage them that I think their cumulative long-term exposure is really on the, the lower end of the spectrum. And so I would probably not be too concerned in the absence of current symptoms. We do know, however, from long-term cigarette smoke, traditional cigarette smoke exposure, that some of the risks really never go away or take decades to fall back to sort of normal age-related declines in lung function. Um, but from what we know now for short-term vaping, and I would define that number of years as on the shorter end, um, I think in the absence of, of current symptoms, they should uh, be proud of the fact that they've been able to kick the habit and uh, not worry too much about it. Yeah. Another listener wants to know uh, the extent uh, that there is any publicly funded research on this or any public health issue. Um, uh, Adding here from the listener, big tobacco still controls and more so now controls all of our knowledge on the health effects of uh, vaping. Uh, uh, So just as an added comment there. So what do you have to say about research happening in this area? Right. And it's, it's, yeah, it's clearly a very, uh, very hot topic. And from both the uh, federal level with the NIH, as well as the American Lung Association, the American Thoracic Society, all interested in funding research relevant to uh, vaping-related um, impacts on lung health. Um, there's, there's also, as you've been implied a few times, a lot of interest in brain development 
and brain health as well. And there's research going on along those those uh, lines as well. Uh, the 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 nod to the influence of big tobacco, I think, is relevant. Um, as the FDA speaker mentioned, there are differences internationally with how we approach some of these things. And our colleagues in the UK are always quick to point out that uh, they have far less lobbying influence from big tobacco in uh, in their legislative efforts uh, than we do at this on this side of the pond. Yeah, and perhaps it, you know, the observation here. I was reporting on this, uh, you know, when it became big, ten. 12 years ago, it seems, you know, our, the, the adoption of, uh, of this, this socialization of vaping just so outpaced our system of research and regulation here that other countries, are you saying other countries were, were on top of this quicker and our system did not respond as well and we had a lot of young brains, bodies being damaged because I, of it. I, I, think that's, uh, I think that's a fair assessment. You look at things that went on, like I said, in the UK or in Australia and some other areas, um, they seem to be a little quicker to the draw, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think, I think the other thing that's interesting, yep. as you mentioned earlier, the original vape pens and e-cigarettes um, clearly were designed to look like everyday items. You mentioned USB, um, USB pods, pens, those sorts of things. What I've noticed over the last year or so is really a move away from that where they become more overt. They're brightly colored. They're large. Some of them you can get 6,000 hits off of. Uh, the smoke that comes out is brightly colored. Um, so again, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that this rapid socialization and acceptance of this way ahead of our regulation or our science yeah. um, is not setting us up for a, a good long-term outcome. Yeah, it's just interesting that that trend of big, flashy uh, vape pens and so forth. But what I'm talking to young people, people in junior high and high school, I know it's they can be so concealed, and the vape, uh, the vapors, if we call them that for this purpose, uh, can be concealed so that you know teachers, anybody, staff at the high schools have a hard time really detecting it if they they take a hit and they can blow it. Well, uh, down there, the the front of their hoodie, right. <laughs> or, or or just to, you know not be detected. So it can be everywhere. Unlike traditional cigarettes, and I remember growing up in high school, we you know there were smokers of traditional cigarettes. We had a smoking square in hmm. at Cedar Falls High, and so so th- there's a key, a key difference. But but let's go to Vicky. Vicky is with us, joining us from uh, Jefferson. Uh, welcome to the program. Short on time, Vicky. Uh, right to the. Oh, right to sure. the nugget of what you want to d- d- talk about. Thanks for joining us. Just fine to know if there shouldn't be more science available and what the problem is there. Oh, there's no problem. It just takes time. Um, science doesn't move as quick as we'd like. I mean, you you want to do it right, and uh, you want to do it unfettered, and so it, uh, it, well, it, it takes a lot of work. My concern has been, has there been some interference by big tobacco, and you may have already uh. addressed that. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't Good think question. they're actually interfering at the individual scientist level now. At at policy and uh, budget formulation, I, I don't have any experience at that level. But certainly, at the uh, the the independent scientists that are doing the research, in large part, are not are not fettered. Now, big tobacco has their own researchers as well, and so you always have to read carefully in the fine print as to who's funding the research. Mm-hmm. You touched on this, perhaps a little bit more. You could share with this doctor. I know it's as a pulmonologist, it's not your area of expertise. But as an MD, can you comment on what you know about 
the brain development and how um, such, in many cases, massive repeated doses of nicotine over months, years, um, may interfere with brain development. Right. Again, it's a, a, a big concern. The brain is uh, is ripe and pliable at that age, and uh, as mentioned, you know, into your early twenties is still. Uh, really susceptible to the effects of exogenous chemicals and toxins. So we worry about, you know, this sort of epidemic we see of anxiety. I mean, how much of that could be could be uh, caused by this? Um, and clearly, you know, if you, you're old enough to remember the reefer madness concerns, I think nicotine is the ultimate gateway drug uh, where it really primes the brain to uh, to both behavior and other substance abuse and, and, and addiction. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, brain development's a big concern. It, Lungs also continue to develop into your early 20s. And so from my perspective, we worry, we worry about that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned this. Go into it. And when, as we look toward the future, you know, what else don't we know about the harm that we may discover in years to go? I'm talking about other risks. Perhaps we haven't mentioned. We have nicotine from uh, vaping, developing, uh, you know, especially young brains. But I see also, uh, I think this is from the CDC, there's, there's an increased uh, risk, of, of risk of cancer uh, relevant here. Well, I mean, some of the products, there are clearly carcinogens found in uh, most of the vape aerosols. Um, again, they're low dose, lower dose than traditional cigarettes. But, uh, you know, a little cancer, is that better than a lot cancer? I, I, I don't know. And so, yeah, I think we're going to find out uh, down the road and it's going to take a little a little more work. But we know from, from traditional cigarette smoking, there's not just lung cancer. There's uh, upper upper aerodigestive cancer, so so-called head and neck cancer, increased risk of bladder cancer. Um, so, and who knows, swallowing some of these compounds might, might alter the effects on GI cancers. So there's there definite concerns there. Yeah. Where do you see this going uh, in the coming years? Where do you hope it will go in terms of getting a better handle on uh, regulation through science-based research? Yeah, it's, I, think, I think it is interesting because it does appear to be a window for these products as a smoking cessation aid. The safety part is the hang-up where we, we, we haven't been able to prove safe. And as pointed out earlier by your FDA um, speaker, it's not clear that you can actually get people off all inhalational products. You know, you transition from a traditional cigarette to the vaping, but getting completely off vaping is, is difficult. So I think uh, we're going to have to focus more on the regulation end as well as is working very hard at the middle school level to fight this uh, socialization, normalization, if you will, of vaping. Um, and that's, that's difficult. I mean, you know, anybody who's raised teenagers knows that kids are uh, pretty impressionable <laughs> at that age and tend to, to not necessarily listen from above as much as they do uh, laterally. Um, right. So we, we need influencers. <laughs> All right, and, and it can have the opposite effect if it's put out there as forbidden yeah. fruit, right? Yeah, correct. We all know this from our our youth, right, <laughs> with <laughs> other, other substances and so forth. Uh, for the individual, though, um, what are your words uh, about quitting? Uh, we heard from uh, our young person there who, you know, um, had a struggle uh, quitting. What are your words to how we break an addiction like this if we have it. Yeah, I think the thing that's most helpful that Jacob mentioned was his uh, above average insight into the effects it had on him personally. And so I try and get my my patients to really focus on that cough you have. You know, look back, it really wasn't there a few years ago before you started. 
You know, are you starting to not do as many things with your peers because you really can't keep up because you're just a little more short of breath? And so finding those personal impacts, I think, are far more effective than me describing theoretical um, effects based on research. Um, that aside, you know, I think there, there are these products do have various concentrations. And if you can get people to work their way down... And then always remembering that smoking, whether it's vaping or traditional cigarettes, has sort of two components. One is the pharmacological nicotine addiction, and then the other is what I call the ceremonial addiction. Um, And so Mm. finding something else to take place of that uh, group interaction or whatever it is that's reinforcing the behavior, um, it's difficult. It's difficult. Nicotine addiction is very real. Yeah, you remind me, Jacob said, you know, he used to live in in sort of a home with uh, or an apartment with many other college students. And a big help he pointed to was I moved on my own and and there wasn't someone else's vape pen laying around, right? I could control my environment. That was key. Yes, absolutely. Peer pressure and and opportunity um, are the two things that you can maybe have some control over. We have about 30 seconds left, Doctor. Can you point us to some resources online that people can follow up with, whether they want to quit or just to find out more about the latest? Right, absolutely. I mean, there's Quitline Iowa, which is uh, good resources for traditional smokers as well as as people addicted to vape pens. The American Lung Association has uh, online um, online resources that you can search for. And as, as we say in that realm, you know, when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. Um, and the CDC, actually, their website has a very good uh, informational and uh, instructional uh, series on, uh, on the dangers of vaping, as well as tools you can use if you're a, a public educator or somebody who has the opportunity to present to children. There's a, a lot of tools out there. Thank you, Thank you uh, Dr. Thomas Gross of the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics for coming in to share your expertise and these important messages. We appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Today's program produced by Caitlin Troutman. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.